tonight we have the extraordinary privilege of being visited by Elaine K. Mark, who's a senior fellow in the Governance Studies Program, as well as the director of the Center for Effective Public Management at the Brookings Institution, and a lecturer in public policy at Harvard Kennedy School of Government. She's the author of Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates, which came out around 2006, but has recently been revised and updated, and is available through Brookings Institution. It is a wonderful read, and I highly recommend it. She's also the author of Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed Again. I know her to be a great speaker as well, for the reason that though I never sat in a classroom with her, it is the case that in 2007, I happened to be trolling uh, her on the web and trying to figure out what kind of work she was doing at that time after primary politics had come out. And I noticed this wonderful interview that took place on PBS between her and a distinguished and seasoned political commentator, Jeff Greenfield, who's also here this evening. I can assure you, if you get those two going, we'll be fine. Elaine? Thank you very much, Leonard and Dana, for putting together this wonderful group of people um, and this wonderful community resource. Um, I will talk for about a half an hour about just basically some history about how we nominate presidents. Um, primaries and nomination systems are the big secret of American politics. They happen, and no one seems to know why they're happening or what's happening. In fact, as it, it's happened to me often, having been writing about this for many years, it's so interesting. Every four years, for about six months, people are really interested in this. And then, as soon as the conventions happen, Everybody forgets what was going on. There's a general election, and nobody thinks about it for another four years. And then all of a sudden, people are saying, what? Why do we do this? How do we do this? We do this how? And it's a kind of crazy system. So let me tell you a little bit how we got to the crazy system we got. And then I'm going to end with a kind of provocative proposal, which I suspect will have all sorts of opinions on. But let me start at the very beginning. So in 1796, and in the early years of the Republic, we nominated our presidential candidates in Congress, in the Congressional Caucus. So the Federalists um, nominated their candidates in the caucus. Now, that went on for a couple of years um, until a very big explosion happened with a, with a deal, and everybody thought, oh, this is no good. Now, the reason it's important to remember this is that that was a short period of time in which our democracy was moving in the direction of being a parliamentary democracy. And I'm going to come back and talk about that from time to time. In a parliamentary democracy, the legislature and the executive are one. The executive arises out of the legislature. You see, they're not separate like they are here. So the notion of a parliament voting against a prime minister is kind of ipso facto ridiculous because if they're so mad at the prime minister that they want to vote against him, the government's going to fail. And they'll go through the whole process again of getting a new one. So, but we were, we were on that trajectory for a fairly, for, for a couple of decades. And then we had a very contested um, election and um, uh, Andrew Jackson um, became president um, eventually. We had a big expansion of the electorate. And all of a sudden, we had the first national convention, which was 1831 in Baltimore, my hometown. And basically, from 1831 all the way through 1968, we nominated presidential candidates in the same way, okay? In the same exact way. 
We had conventions. The conventions were composed of delegates. The delegates came from states. And they basically represented um, the power structure of that party in that state. In today's parlance, and for the young people here who maybe never heard this before, um, for most of American history, we nominated our presidential candidates in conventions composed solely of superdelegates. That's how we did it. So the much maligned name now is it was basically how we did business in American government. Um, to, like, let me give you a thought experiment. Um, imagine that Franklin Roosevelt and, and Dwight D. Eisenhower came back and sat through a modern presidential campaign. The general election, in spite of the internet and television and all this stuff, but the general election would be quite familiar to them. They'd, they'd get it, right? You, you, they'd understand safe seats and safe states and toss-up states, and you go campaign in the toss-up states in order to get the electoral college vote. So but technology aside, they'd kind of get what the game plan was. Have them looking at a nomination race, they would be thoroughly confused. Okay, the notion that momentum could exist coming out of the Iowa caucuses in the winter, when for them, momentum was in fact something that only happened at the convention once all the delegates were in the hall and beginning to do their business. The notion that you would have delegates selected and bound to the results of voters Pretty unusual, one or two states had it over time, but basically that was not the way the system worked. The notion that there would be, and, and I, I always think of this in 2008, the notion that Joe Biden and Chris Dodd, two respected United States senators with between them more than 70 years of governmental experience would be afterthoughts, <laughs> in a race dominated by a former first lady and a one-term senator. Obviously, the fact that he, the female and black part of that would be amazing to them too, but even if it was a one-term white male senator and um, you know somebody with a one-term in the United States Senate from New York, it would still have been amazing. So they, the nomination system is quite different. Why? Well, it all starts in 1968. I think most people around this table were grown-ups in 1968 and can remember what a show that was, where there, there was a mess inside the convention, Democratic convention in Chicago, and there was a mess outside the convention on the streets. Um, and of course, the controversy was over Vietnam, and it was over the role of Lyndon Johnson and then his handpicked successor, Hubert Humphrey. And the anti-war movement felt that they had made significant inroads in the primaries and that they were shut out of participation in the convention and that they were basically denied a seat at the table. Uh, this is a convention with Mayor Daley yelling at the protesters, with Mayor Daley's police clubbing the protesters. <laughs> For the students in the room, you can go look on YouTube and see, see clips of just how violent this was. The result of that convention was an attempt to make nice. And the attempt took the form of something called the McGovern-Fraser Commission which was to look at the whole way we nominated presidents, look at conventions, see you know what we should do differently. Now, the interesting thing is the McGovern-Fraser Commission did not ever explicitly set out to do the things that it ended up doing. It's a, it's a great example of um, unintended consequences of reform. They didn't really know what was going to happen as a result. But they did six, they put together six key rules, which I'll talk about in a second, which in combination and in their interaction had the effect of dramatically changing the way we nominate 
American presidents. I mean, a way in, in ways that, when we look back, are pretty striking. Um, first of all, they said that the first-tier caucuses in any state had to be open to anybody who wanted to be known as a Democrat which meant you could walk in off the street, you didn't have to be a precinct captain, you didn't have to be have participated in your precinct politics. You could just come into the caucuses. And these Excuse days... Who created this commission? The 1968 convention. The so, Democratic, Democratic convention. convention, yes. It was, it was a formed out of the convention. Um, the second one was that the first, that caucuses had to be held at the same time and the same day throughout the state, which meant that suddenly you could look at the results of caucuses and report it as if it was a primary. You could say, oh my goodness, look who won, right? These people won. Whereas when the caucuses, as they used to be, were spread out over weeks and months, you, un unless you were like in the middle of the state, you couldn't report that. And certainly a, a national reporter like Jeff Greenfield couldn't fly in and say, this is what's going on, it'd be impossible to know. Third thing, and this was transformative, was that every participant at every level of the process, welcome, Thank <laughs> you. Um, had, to, um, had to declare their presidential preference. Okay, now again, in the old days, you know, people generally had an idea who was for who, and certainly in 1960, when Bobby Kennedy was traveling the country, 1958-59, Bobby Kennedy's traveling the country for his brother, you know, he would go into states and they kind of knew who their people were, etc. But there was no formal obligation to declare. And the people who were playing in this game and getting elected were, by and large, people who were important in the party in some way, shape, or form. Um, they banned the use of the unit rule, which meant that no longer could the majority of a state delegation vote everybody's votes. In other words, if one candidate had 20 votes, they got to vote for that candidate. Um, and they argued that delegates had to fairly reflect the will of the voters. Now again, this was, again, transformative because this meant applying proportional representation to the nomination system. Proportional representation is used often in parliamentary systems. It is used almost nowhere else in American politics. This is, this is different. American politics is almost always winner-take-all. And finally, um, states had to use affirmative action in the delegate selection process. They had to make sure that women were involved, that minorities were involved, etc. As they did this, right, as the Democrats did this and imposed it on Democratic state parties for 1972, what happened was, again, inadvertently, they reformed the Republican Party as well. And the reason was, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and the reason was that in those days, most state legislatures were Democratic. So what happened is states looked at this and they said, okay, the best way not to get in trouble at the next convention is to adopt a primary, adopt proportional rules in the primary, declare that delegates had to reflect the will of the primary. Let's do it. So they wrote this into state statutes. And they wrote them into state statutes for the Republican Party as well. So there was this inadvertent um, you know, reform of the other party. So what were some of the consequences? Well, the big one, or first big one, is that suddenly the preferences of the voters became binding on the delegates, okay? That what the voters said mattered in terms of who the delegates were. The number of presidential preference primaries only practically disappeared from mid-century to the current day. So. That's a big, big change. And even, again, in the Republican Party, and I'll get to that in a minute, even in 2016, they actually had a fight over this in the Republican Party. So this has been an issue. 
as the number of primaries became binding, uncommitted convention delegates disappeared as well. So at the 1952 Democratic Convention, 51% of the delegates were uncommitted. At the 1952 Republican Convention, 28% were uncommitted. In other words, large blocks of delegates used to be at the conventions, and that's where all the famous bargaining and the back room, smoke-filled room deals took place with these uncommitted delegates. Um, often a powerful governor, a powerful senator, a big city mayor would control this block of uncommitted delegates and use them for bargaining with the presidential candidate. Um, the other thing that happened, again, totally inadvertently, is that all of a sudden, because the public was a player and because you could report winning and losing, er being early became really important. So the New Hampshire primary, which had been early for eons, right, all of a sudden becomes a make or break deal, as does the Iowa caucus, okay? The little insignificant Iowa caucus, all of a sudden, I mean, I can't tell you how much money people spend in Iowa, in fact, and how many people come there. In fact, I still remember driving Jeff and Joe Klein through a snowstorm in Iowa in 2004, because every, every you know, reporter in America was in Iowa for these darn caucuses. Um, and so that created a desire to be first, and it had the perverse effect and Californians are always upset about this, rightfully so. It has a perverse effect of taking small states and frankly making them more important than big states, okay? And that has been the case ever since. California, uh, California sometimes tries to go early and they discover that even if they go early, guess what? Iowa and New Hampshire still <laughs> start the show. So very frustrating, okay? Um, the number of binding primaries explodes, the uncommitted delegates disappear, the selection moves earlier in the year, Iowa and New Hampshire increase in importance. All of that means that the party officials and the elected officials who used to nominate the president, um, used to nominate people in the, um, nominate the presidential candidate, are suddenly gone. Now, in the middle of this transformation, which again, is, is the first convention was 1972 for the Democrats and the Republicans, although the Republican convention in 72, Nixon was president, it was a pretty staid affair, so you didn't see any of this. 1972 Democratic Convention, again, all heck's breaking loose. I mean, it's a mess, right? McGovern goes on at three o'clock in the morning, East Coast time, nobody sees his speech, there's challenges, there's confusion, not to mention that the convention looks like a bunch of hippies, and America isn't exactly thrilled with that convention. Um, I thought it was great, but I was a hippie then, so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh, looking back, I can tell you that America wasn't so thrilled with that. Um, and the next convention that happens is 1976, and not only do we nominate uh, Jimmy Carter, but he wins, okay? He wins, and then he proceeds to be a pretty terrible president. Okay, now, now looking back, we all think Jimmy Carter is wonderful, and he has done wonderful things in his post-presidency. But for those of us who worked in the party during Jimmy Carter's presidency, as I did, believe me, it was one mess after another. And not surprisingly, he lost in a huge landslide to Ronald Reagan in 1980. His, the, the quality of his presidency contributed to the next change in the nomination system, which is in 19, um, in between 1980 and 1984, the Democrats adopted something called the superdelegates. In other words, they said, wait a minute, we have pushed our party leaders out of the party, we need to bring them back in. And so they gave them uncommitted status 
um, to the convention, <laughs> members of the House, members of the Senate, governors, and members of the Democratic National Committee. And so that has essentially been the system from 1984 on. There's various little changes in there. Um, the Republican system is very similar, although they don't have superdelegates per se, but they do use proportional representation. They have vari variations on the theme. Um, and a couple other things result from that. First of all, the nominee is almost always known by the time you get to the convention, okay? And so the first time I gave this talk many years ago when the, when the book was in its first edition, a very, I was on Cape Cod and a very old woman, um, was probably in her late 80s, came up to me and said to me, now I understand why the conventions are so boring. <laughs> she could remember that in the 50s, right, she was old enough to remember that in the 50s and the 60s, people sat glued to the television watching the conventions because you didn't really know what was going to happen. Again, for the, the kids in the room, the young people in the room, YouTube has a fantastic piece of Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson speaking to the California Convention in L.A. in 1960. And you see both of them going into the room and the delegates are all getting their breakfast and wearing funny hats. And, and you see, well, first of all, LBJ gets up there and all he does is run through all the bills he's passed. And it's like, uh-oh, pretty boring. And then Jack Kennedy gets up there and he is funny and he is charming and Game over, okay? <laughs> but that's how, the, even at that late date, right? They were going around to the delegates and they were trying to, you know, get, get the delegates to, um, you know, to be for them. Now, that's essentially the history. And in a, in a nutshell, we went from a closed sis, a, a system that was by and large a closed system to a system that is by and large an open system. Okay, one where party elites ruled the roost to one where the public basically rules. There's variations along the way, but that's the transformation. So now for our seminar question, all right? What did we lose when that happened? What did we lose along the way? In the 1980s, when this system was brand new, a bunch of political scientists said, look, here's the problem with this new system. We are losing peer review. We are losing the judgments of other politicians and other people who govern as to what these candidates for president are like. And while we think of the old party bosses and stuff as a bunch of corrupt people, blah, 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 um, I want to give you another thought experiment. So Governor Lawrence was the governor of Pennsylvania in 1959-1960. He controlled a big block of delegates, the Pennsylvania delegation. And Jack Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy had to woo him right, on a personal level, and they had to convince him of two things. First and foremost, they had to convince him that Jack Kennedy could win, um, even though he was a Catholic. And secondly, they had to convince him that Jack Kennedy was sane and could govern and wasn't just a spoiled rich kid, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, there were probably some pretty decent discussions, probably over brown liquid and cigars, you know, in those days, Cuban cigars, of course, because that was before the Bay of Pigs. Um, and I want you to imagine now Donald Trump having to go into a discussion with a governor of Pennsylvania and sitting down and saying to him, yeah, I'm going to build a wall and I'm going to make Mexico pay for it. And the governor of Pennsylvania knowing appropriations, knowing legislatures, knowing something about how the government works, says, are you out of your blankety-blank mind? Okay, um, end of conversation. So what we took out of the system was peer review. Now, every other profession has peer review. 
right? Every other profession. You don't go to a neurosurgeon who has not been reviewed and deemed competent to work because by other neurosurgeons, right? We have peer review for electricians, we have it for plumbers, we, we have it for just about everybody who does anything important to us. We have no peer review for the President of the United States. Now for a long time this didn't matter. Frankly, between 72 and the, uh, up until 2016, you know, by and large you can argue that the people nominated in this new system were pretty much the people that might have been nominated in the old system. Certainly Mitt Romney was a, was a very credible politician. Certainly Ronald Reagan, you know, everybody's, everybody wants to think of Ronald Reagan as a movie actor. They, always, they seem to forget he, hello, ran the biggest state in the union for two terms. I mean, he knew a little bit about this business. So by and large, this concern about peer review disappeared from the conversation in academia and the conversation among political people because by and large we had nominated in both parties credible potential presidents. And then comes Donald Trump. Um, in the paper I think we passed out to you, there's an appendix in the back. Um, every nominee of a major party in the 20th century had an average and a median of 12 years of public service. Donald Trump had none. He is by far and away the least qualified person ever nominated and then elected. But there's a second issue here too, which is there's the question of temperament. You know, one of the Chief Justice, help me out here, Jeff, was it Brandeis? It was Oh uh, uh, yeah, Oliver Wendell Holmes said of Roosevelt that he had a third-rate intellect but a first-rate temperament. Temperament is, you know, how you behave, how you interact with people. I mean, that's a judgment that voters can't possibly make, right? That's a judgment that your peers make. I was told I went to the Republican convention for the book to do some old-fashioned reporting, and the one thing that I learned there which surprised me was how much the Republicans hated Ted Cruz. I mean, they hated him. They just hated him. They were willing to take, they hated him so much, they were willing to take a, a flyer on Donald Trump. And you know, that's something that, th these were people who knew him, who hated him. And I was kind of surprised at that as a Democrat, I, I, I wouldn't have necessarily known that. And of course, that's one of the reasons that a n n stop Trump movement never got any place. But basically, to go back, the, the issue is peer review, okay? The issue is peer review. Should we try to inject peer review in some way back into the nominating process in both parties? Is it even possible? Right? Given how people feel about superdelegates, that there's somehow something wrong with them, this is, this is a really tough task, but it is one that I want to put out for consideration because, after all, this system has changed dramatically in our lifetimes. And depending on what happens with this president in particular, it could perhaps change again. So with that, let me stop and open it up for questions about the history or conversation. I just wanted to talk about your, your issue of peer review. Uh, peer review, it seems to me, is what the endorse endorsements are all about. It's about um, trying to get people who are elected, who are well known, to say, yes, I support you. Donald Trump got almost zero endorsements. N almost nobody right. um, endorsed him. But the voters seem to think that was good. Yeah. Um, that, that not right. having people support you spoke well of you. Um, I don't quite understand that, but it seems to me that if peer review is going to have any meaning, it's got to be that the voters think it's important and they don't seem to. Well, that's, that is exactly the problem. That is precisely the problem with even bringing up this topic. Um, but I will point to a small change in the zeitgeist, okay, that may affect this. There's a um, Quinnipiac poll out right after the, um, not the, uh, the Golden Globes where Oprah made such a 
hit. And they asked, they asked Americans, do you think it's a good idea to have a celebrity as president? And guess what? Americans said no. <laughs> they said no. And the same people, they loved Oprah. They said Oprah was great, but they did not want her to be president. So again, these things, one of the reasons we went without much complaint from the old system to the new system is that for between 1972 and 2016, the two parties basically gave up the same kinds of candidates. You know, I mean, we basically the presidential, if you think back over the, the pairs of presidential candidates, um, you know, they were basically credible presidents. And then we had Trump. And one of the, you know, the question is how does history change? Right? What, what, what makes you turn? What makes the voter have a different opinion on this? And if Trump crashes and burns as a president and takes the Republican Party with him, or the country, or the country, and, and or the country um, then you can see a, a change, people looking and saying, well, wait a minute, how did we get him? Right? How did we get him? Now, we're not there yet. Right, we're not there yet, but some people, some people think we are, and we may be. Again, that's the kind of you know it took the explosion of 1968 for the Democratic Party to so radically change the way it did. So again, it takes a big, a big to do. Yes. Yeah, right here. Where's the? Here we go. We, we could have other parts of this uh, conversation. One of the things I, it, it, it's a little, it's not really off topic. During the, uh, the 30s or the late 20s, lots of uh, places around the world had dictatorships and, uh, right, you know, fascist dictatorships and there's a certain amount of movement and bad in the world going on right now. Yeah. And, I know, how much of this not having, you know, having a, a, a the, a populist type of drive where people were driven by something allows something like that to happen. I mean, the, the simple fact that we had controls in this country may have kept us from having that in this country. There was a big depression in the parodies. There was a big what? A big depression in the parodies. But yes, we didn't right. we, we didn't, didn't have no, a populist dictatorship. No, we did not. So right. what and happened? I mean, so there is something happened? that's a big deal about in Germany, I mean, why did Hitler were allowed, to, or not only in Germany, but Hitler was allowed to run, and mm -hmm. I don't think he was allowed. He was allowed to run because they were under all sorts of pressure, and it 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 turned out to be something similar to what happened here, even though the details are so different. Yeah. Okay. Well, and yeah, other comments. That's well. That's well. Well taken. I mean, well argued. Other. Here. Yeah. Right. Right over here. Yeah. Yeah. And Stephen, then you'll go next, or Alex will go next. Thank you. Well, okay. oh, my. oh, I think you were next. Yeah, and then, then Alex, thank okay. Um, Elaine, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for, for being here and keeping us from having to watch the State of the Union. <laughs> <laughs> and I can say the same to you guys. <laughs> um, what, one, of the, one of the, among many extraordinary numbers in the exit polls uh, from, from November 16, is that a majority of Trump voters, and I, it approached 60%, voted to him, voted for him, even though they believed he was not qualified mm -hmm. to be president. Even assuming that, you know, maybe they'll say at some point, gee, this wasn't such a great idea. Why do you think that they would then regress to relying upon the opinions and views of peer review of the parties? when in fact the whole Trump experience seems to me to be people running away from political parties. Well, again, this is the, this is the inflection point theory of politics, right? That sometimes something happens that's so extraordinary that it changes people's minds, okay? And again, we don't know how extraordinary this presidency is gonna be. It could just kind of plop along um, doing some things that Republicans like. The tax bill was just classic Republican <coughs> policy and, and you know a lot of people thought that was just fine. Or it could totally disintegrate and it can we can find that 
Donald Trump was in a Putin puppet and had been laundering money for him, and we somehow managed to elect a traitor. So you know, we we don't know, we don't, we will not know until it's over, the extent to which Trump is a disaster. If he is just kind of a, a not very good president, okay, not very competent, but. But, you know, there's nothing, they don't find anything wrong with him. He does some good things. He does some things that the Republican Party likes. The economy stays good, et cetera. Then I don't think we will have this discussion about peer review, okay? But it's when you have big failures that you get change, right? And so 68 was a failure. In 68, the, the system failed to take into account a new generation, the anti-war movement, a lot of things. And so you had change coming out of it. The question, which we don't know the answer to yet, is are we looking at a failure of the presidency, which will be significant enough to change the minds of these voters, right? And, and to, to do something else. Um, let's see, right here, Alex. Well, thank you for um, reading my name and everything. Yep. And Yours is the only one I can read. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to thank you for coming and giving this great presentation. I very much yeah, enjoyed it. Uh, my question is essentially, I, I'm a student at Santa Barbara City College, and I really, really did enjoy what, all the things you talked about. But I'm very interested to know, what do you recommend is the best way we can apply the knowledge we've learned in this seminar as individuals? What do we, what cultural changes should we approve and voice our approval of? What sort of uh, personal changes should we make? Or perhaps what do you believe we should say to our friends and family if such a topic comes up? What should we impress upon them? What is the important thing for us to take away and change in our lives? How do we change our own status quo into being a supportive and productive group in society? Well, that's that's a heavy question. Uh, <laughs> um, sir, what's your name over here? George. 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 As George point, is it George? Am I saying? George. 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 Okay. You're right on it. I'm right. Okay. okay. You got it. Address announcer for the UCSB. You need a megaphone. And I need a hearing aid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> George, George was making the point earlier that, at which I think the country is kind of learning, that somebody who ran a successful business doesn't necessarily make a good politician, okay? I think we need to talk about that, okay? I think we need renewed respect for the essence of the political life, which is compromise or deal-making. Call it whatever you want. That's what Call it whatever you want, but it's compromise, it's negotiation. Now, one of the ironies of this president is that he sold himself as a mega deal maker, and he can't negotiate anything. I mean, they don't even listen to him. He's irrelevant because he doesn't know enough to negotiate. So I constantly say to my students or audiences, I say, look, you wouldn't ask me to negotiate your real estate deal. Right? I would not be the person, I would be maybe the last person you'd come to, right? And Trump sort of sold America on this kind of silly notion that if you were good at deal making in one sphere, you were good at deal making in all other spheres. Well, that's just not true, okay? It, it requires different knowledge. Um, and so I think that's one of the things. And I think the other thing is that this is serious business. Now, if you're mad at the system, as so many Trump, as you pointed out, so many Trump voters were, if you mad mad at the system, you want to change the system, you want to clean it up, right? You need to actually have somebody who knows something about how the system works, because you can't fix it if you know nothing about it. So why is Trump in such a mess on his big central immigration ban? is because he can't manage to write an executive order or write an immigration ban that passes constitutional muster. And so he has been stopped, I think, three times now by the courts, right? Now, think back. Imagine, uh, and, and my, the, imagine Dick Cheney, okay? 
Dick Cheney was maybe the most masterful, masterful bureaucratic operator that we've ever seen in the White House. Okay, I didn't necessarily like what he did, but I had to say, wow, Dick Cheney knew how to make the government work. Imagine somebody with Dick Cheney's skill looking at Donald Trump's immigration promises, sitting down with the Border Patrol, with the Department of Homeland Security, and crafting policies that actually did what Donald Trump promised to do. But again, one of the things that we have to learn and we have to tell people is that may sound great to you, but here's the question. Can that person deliver? Can they actually deliver? I suspect many of you in this room are investors or have been investors. When you invest, don't you ask the question, does this person, does this business, does this leadership of this company know what they're doing? Right? Um, I may like what they say they're going to do, but can they deliver? There was an anger in the Republican Party this time, no doubt about it. But the anger was directed at somebody who couldn't deliver and hasn't, and so far hasn't delivered for them and is not consistent in his beliefs. This goes to temperament. So the Times today writes this wonderful piece about how Donald Trump supporters are all worried about tonight's speech. Why? They're worried that Donald Trump is going to go wishy-washy on them, right? Going to start abandoning them right and left. Well, yeah, you know, Donald Trump never seems to stick to one opinion for very long. Um, you can worry about that. So those are the sorts of things we have to start evaluating presidents for the, in the mindset that it's a job. It's a job. And can they do the job? Uh, uh, right here. So I would like to go back to the topic of primaries, if I may. Um, so some state primaries are winner-take-all, correct? Mm -hmm. uh, in the Republican right. side, not in the Democrats. Well, we're talking side. about Republicans here because we're focused on what happened with Trump. Yeah. Some are winner-take-all and some are proportional. Yeah. Uh, and also the, the issue that you alluded to here, that by the time it got around to California, everything was decided. Yeah. The Californians didn't really have a vote. Um, and I want to add the fact that in the beginning, with all the uh, wide range of candidates, Trump was really only winning about 30 percent of the of the of the primary vote, give or take. 30 to 40, yeah, depending on where. So, what do you think is the chance that state states will actually look at this and possibly come up with a fairer system? Oh, good question. And uh, and in you know because you could have. Uh, with, yeah, with, the, with computers, you could have a ranking system and therefore uh -huh. uh, it would be uh, the first and the second and aggregate and so forth. Well, that's a great question. So let me tell you about Colorado in 2016. The state of Colorado had a caucus system and the state party chairman decided to take the presidential preference poll off the system. So in other words, at the very first level, the precinct level, Republican activists show up, but they don't vote for president, like they do in Iowa, for instance. So there was no idea other than the, it, it was like the old fashioned system. They were going through a process that was gonna end up with the election of delegates to Cleveland, but there was no presidential preference along the way. Now, when they got to their state convention, there were big fights between Ted Cruz and, and Donald Trump, and they were trying to elect people who they thought would be delegates. But the fact was that in the absence of a presidential preference poll, there, the system, at least in one state in the union, reverted to the old-fashioned system, where the delegates were elected because they were delegates, because they were somehow important in the party, et cetera. Not surprisingly, the core of the Never Trump movement at the Republican convention was the Colorado delegation. They were the ones that brought the provision in the Rules Committee to unbind the delegates. They were the ones that called for the roll call vote, which Previs knocked down. They were the ones that walked out in protest, et cetera. So in the Republican Party, 
you could imagine a movement among state parties in 2020 to get rid of their presidential preference and just go back to electing national convention delegates. The Democratic Party, that's pretty hard to do because in the Democratic Party, we actually have a rule that says they must reflect the preference and we allow the presidential candidates to approve the delegates. You see, so we're, I mean, the Demo for the Democrats to do this would be very difficult. For the Republicans to do this, though, is kind of intriguing. Jeff's got a two finger here. Yeah. You know what a two finger is and, yeah. yeah. We, um, we do have peer review, only it shifted to the press. Once, mm -hmm. yeah. once the party elders couldn't gather in those now illegal smoke-filled rooms, the press historically performed this function which one political scientist calls rise scrutiny and then either accept or decline, uh, particularly with strangers, people you don't know. Gary Hart shows up even before the issue with the ladies. Who is this guy? Um, Howard Dean shows up, by the time the caucuses start, there's questions about him. Sarah Palin, whom you mentioned, had a 48 great hours with her acceptance speech and the press realized what was going on and she wound up really hurting the party. Why didn't it happen with Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. My belief is it's because at that point a sufficient number of Republicans didn't trust the press at all to, to validate. They were making their own judgments. One reason, which my wife pointed out to me very early, they'd seen this guy for years, every week on primetime television as an effective leader. And by the time the primaries happened, more people knew Donald Trump than any of the other 16 people. And the second thing was the rejection of the system as is, but not just among Republicans, this is part of Bernie Sanders' triumph, was so big that everything that we thought was a bug turned out to be a feature. No experience? Great. He's not corrupt. Billions of dollars? He can't be bought. He's vulgar? Great. Somebody should have told those people a long time ago. And that's what I think went on in 2016 and explains why even though one senator endorsed him, Jeff Sessions, papers that had backed Republicans for 100 years, one for Hillary, the voters, enough voters didn't care. The disconnect of people who felt that the system had screwed them and that Trump's opponent was part of that system, I think helps explain some of this. Uh, MSNBC and CNN covered every one of his rallies. Why? Yes, because well, okay, because he was the leading figure, and because he drew eyeballs. And by the way, just one of the after the first several weeks, the press got very tough on Donald Trump and asked him very tough questions, and he imploded a dozen times in any other campaign from the time he attacked John McCain. Never mind the tape. His enough of his voters said, "I don't care." And I think that's, I don't think there's anything to be done about that. Yeah, now let's see, we had some questions here and then we'll come over here. So let's go, let's go down to this gentleman right there, yeah. And then there was another, there was I'd somebody like else to on the side. To your, no, you are, okay, good. To your we'll solution and then come to you. of uh, peer review. So uh, who was the most peer reviewed person in recent history uh, for a presidential nomination, the most qualified person? to be president, it was Hillary Clinton. She, she mm -hmm. won because of superdelegates, and she was eminently qualified. But she wasn't a good politician, and she lost. Um, if you look, you said, you know, everybody's peer-reviewed. Well, what about entrepreneurs? What do Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, or Oprah Winfrey have that Chester Arthur, James Buchanan, <laughs> and, Arthur, and Andrew Johnson don't have? They were not peer-reviewed. These are the worst presidents up to now mm -hmm. who were peer-reviewed under your definition. I think the problem is, there is a problem, and you know, you're identifying a problem of going at it because Trump, you don't like Trump, but he has been effective in tax reform. He has been effective in conservative judges. You know, so the people who elected him are very happy with him. Mm -hmm. It was not a majority of the country. So, one, so what are the problems? Electoral college might be a problem. We could look at that. Uh, a second is that maybe parties have too much power. Mickey Edwards argues that, and no labels argue that we have too much power. Now there's 
just in today's papers talking about a third party. Ross Perot, who was, I guess, not peer-reviewed, almost, he, if he had stayed in the race, he might have actually at least pulled in a you know, significant part of the uh, electorate. But I think the real problem is the fact that the voters who knew that they were, that this, he knew, they knew what Trump was, and they voted for him. So what does it say about voters? And I think the solution is in terms of citizen literacy and more responsibility and citizenship uh, when we, you know, when we exercise mm -hmm. that vote than it is to try to recreate party smoke-filled rooms or, you know, the, the mm -hmm. modern equivalent of it. So, uh, well and, and just one other thing, which is you're speaking in California where we have nonpartisan primaries. So mm -hmm. we've actually addressed this on the state level by removing the party uh, uh, aspect. Good, well said. Let's see, right here. It's a big mess. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this is what we are so, discussing, you bet. <laughs> but I think that we, um, I knew, I actually had friends, it's made a difference in a couple of relationships, very wealthy, very well-educated people that voted for Trump. And it was stunning to me that that could happen. But I can understand, I can see what they were going for, and it was a very personal thing. Um, I think it's a massive issue. I think nobody wants to go back to the political things that happened before. They want, to, they want the people who care, which is a lot of us, want this mess to be fixed. And we want, we want people that are trustworthy and, and to be respected that are our senators and our congressmen and we vote to take them to power and then they change in the back room someplace. Um, so it, it's a massive problem. And I think people were mad and people were angry and, and it wasn't just people that were poorly educated, although that was a piece of it. But they, they were acting on their gut feelings and they thought this guy, I love what this one woman said, she was a comedian and she said during this whole election, she said, he's rich, he's not gonna make you rich. <laughs> but it didn't resonate. So I think, I think that the, the, the word to the young people is help us, those that are a little tired that have been doing this for a while and we have to keep fighting this, is that um, continue to be, uh, to continue to hold on to that altruism and the things you believe in and the things that we all believe in that are, that are important and let's try to fix this. Good, well said. I think right here is the next one. <laughs> to, uh, now you, I can read your name. No. Oh, this is Mark. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Well, 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 well. Uh, I want to uh, pick up on some of the things that Jerry has said and some others have said. Uh, as somebody who had uh, predicted the election of Donald Trump since uh, 2015 in three different articles, wow. I'd, I'd just like to, to, to offer why I was so good at prediction. <laughs> and, that, and that is that, and this ties into your peer review, and that is that the very uh, uh, phrase, peer review, reeks of elitism. Yes, that's right. Weeks exactly of elitism. And if there'd be one suggestion I would give to uh, Brother Alex here, who started the Open Mind Project on City <laughs> College, is to, is to do away with a, a, anything that bespeaks of the elitism. For instance, the notion that uh, only educated people should vote. Right. right. <laughs> or, or that educated people vote, they vote better than non-educated people vote. The reason why I was able to predict uh, uh, that Trump would win was because Centralized structures are destructuring all over the world. The European Union, even the Vatican. The Republican Party, the Democrat Party, they're all destructuring. Why? Because people do not like other people who consider themselves to be elitists, whether they're politicians or academics or celebrities in Hollywood, running their lives. They just don't like that. Mm -hmm. And Trump captured that moment. As Absolutely. despicable as we might think he is, he captured it. I'm sorry. He, no, you're absolutely right. He absolutely did. And you know, let, let me go back. Changing a system doesn't change all the problems in the world, right? It is entirely possible that, suppose you had the Republican Party coming out as somebody did say and say, no, no, this guy's not right, he's not right, not right, and, and, and through endorsements he did. The voters might say, well, screw you all anyway. 
and do what they want to do. That's what they did. In 1964, under the old system, somebody who a lot of Republicans didn't like, Barry Goldwater, captured the nomination. Now, he captured it in a different way, however. He captured it by taking over the Republican Party at the grassroots level, precinct by precinct, county by county. In fact, the reporting at that time, which I've got in my book, shows that the New York Times kept thinking that Nelson Rockefeller was going to win delegates because mm -hmm. he was winning primaries, and Barry Goldwater had the delegates. Okay, he had the delegates wrapped up. So there was a, you know, so he was doing it in the old system. You, the old system, you can still do it, it's just harder. The difference is in the old system, Barry Goldwater's work produced Ronald Reagan. Okay, Barry Goldwater fundamentally reshaped the part, the Republican Party, and, and created the modern. Republican Party. It took a while till Reagan was, Reagan ran in 76. He almost unseated a sitting president. Um, and then he won in 80 and had two successful terms. So, you know, it, it, it's not, you don't solve every problem by changing the system. People can still vote. You can still have changes within political parties. The difference here is the instability of the current president, okay? It's not that he passed a tax bill, okay? Any Republican president was gonna pass a tax bill. The Republican Congress had been working on the tax bill when Camp was chairman of Ways and Means. The Republican Party was gonna pass a tax bill. They love passing tax bills. Um, they love tax bills the way Democrats love healthcare. You know, it's, it's just one of those things. Um, they were gonna pass a tax bill. It, it's not the what. It's the how and who, and the question of capacity and the question of stability. And that's what has made this discussion, I think, fresh again, and made people worry again, is that is this man unstable? We don't know, but there are times when we've thought that he has been. And that's, that's, that's brought the question up, not the policy. Take the policy away, but the actual human being. Peer review in politics is not about a ruling class, okay? It's not about funders. It's about people who get elected. So every superdelegate is actually elected by people. They are elected by Democrats in a primary. They're elected by Democratic voters in general election. So the, so the, the quote, elitism thing is a little weird here to apply because you're not talking about a property class. You're talking about your representative that you vote for in Congress. Same thing with the party people. The party, party positions are elected positions in the Democratic parties and in the Republican parties in the states. National committee men and national committee women are elected. Okay, they're about as grassroots as you can get. They are not a property class. They're not a wealthy class. Um, I would invite you to go to a DNC meeting sometime and you will not see a lot of wealthy people there. You're gonna see a lot of trade union, a lot of trade union people, a lot of teachers, a lot of people who've worked their way up through the teachers unions and the various coalitions. You go to a Repu Republican National Committee, you're gonna see a lot of people who've been in the trenches on the right to life movement for years and years. So these are not elites, okay? These are people who are, the, the, the peer review in a political sense is not about money or class or property. It's about do you have a legitimate electoral base that got you to that place? And so that's who the peer review would be. Um, that, and so that's, a, I just wanted to clarify that. Now, it has the, the you know, people who don't like it call it elitism, right? But I, I, I would just challenge you to go look at the actual membership of the Democratic National Committee or the Republican National Committee. I mean, one of my friends in the Republican National Committee is in North Dakota and he owns a small company and he makes swimming pool parts. How do you like that, making swimming pool pumps in North Dakota, but that's what he does. He's a classic, he's a classic Republican small businessman. He's not a billionaire, you know. He's a Republican because he's a businessman, but 
believe me, he doesn't have oodles and oodles of money, and he's not at all an elitist. So I, I want to clarify that. Every single person who gets to these positions has been elected by someone. Okay, one more question, and I think we were going to do, um, actually, you didn't ask one, so do you mind if, okay, thank you. Trying to get people who didn't get to die. I noticed that the initial reaction on the Democratic side to the results of the election wasn't to let, let's, let's put the adult in the room. It was let's replicate what the other side did. So the indivisibles were kind of built on, well, what did the Tea Party movement do? Mm -hmm. Which is a move away, toward, you know, away from peer review, again, seizing the moment of those that were elated with the Bernie Sanders movement, the Barack Obama movement. And I wonder to what extent the, you know, the gerrymandering of congressional districts plays into the dilemma that the Democratic Party is in, because there seems to be the, still this split between if our end goal is turnout, do we get that turnout by firing up the base or by claiming the center? And because of the gerrymandering, it seems that there's this push towards, well, you fire up the base because that's what the how the districts are drawn. They're drawn to kind of consolidate mm -hmm. these bases. Um, and that may push the Democratic Party more towards the fire up the base, which to me is more the anti-establishment, the, um, you know, away from peer review and the structures that exist. It seems to me that's the direction that we're headed. And that's, it's an exacerbated well, problem. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, the, the gerrymandering is, it's a, let me talk about gerrymandering, okay? Gerrymandering hurts Democrats, pure and simple. Now, but it's not as simple as you think. Districts are gerrymandered to create majority-minority districts. And this was done with the full cooperation of Democrats back in the 70s and 80s who thought that African Americans needed an African American district to win. Barack Obama changed all that, right? And the experience of a younger generation of African American leaders like Cory Booker, et cetera, um, the, the, the governor of Boston, whose name is escaping me right now, DeVal Patrick, yeah. So that's changed. So what you now see is a move to undo some of these districts. There are 16 African American districts in the United States Senate. I think if you were to undo them and make them contiguous districts, you might double the number of Democratic seats. You okay. What? I mean, in the Congress, in the co in the House, in the House. Um, so the the gerrymandering hurts Democrats, and it hurts Democrats because when it started to happen, there was this odd um, collusion almost between people who thought you had to do that for the Voting Rights Act. Okay, and it, I mean that that's that's the history of it. If that comes undone, Democrats will take more seats. Okay, pure and simple, and it's not really a question of the base, right? Right now, the problem with the Democratic base, and it's in the Electoral College as well, is that the Democratic base is all jammed into districts, okay? Um, it's all jammed in there, so you get d Democratic districts then where the Democrats are winning 70, 80% of the vote. Well, that's just way, that's, that's 70, 80% is 20 to 30% more than you need. Right? So what the Republicans have very cleverly done in many states is make sure that all the Democratic voters are in one district. And when all the Democratic voters are in one district, it doesn't matter if you fire up the base or not. Right? It's, it's irrelevant. You're just not going to win more. Now, if you get more competitive districts, okay, you will have to fire up the base and get those moderates out to vote for you. And the big hope, of course, in the upcoming elections is that there are some suburban, well-off suburban districts where Democrats think that Republican women are going to cross over in fairly large numbers and maybe give Democrats the House. Okay, so that's where, that's, that's where the hope is. Jerry, last point, last question. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I just wanted to go back to something uh, Jeff said and, and, all, and combine it with what Mark 
or as I like to call him, Frank, uh, said. (laughs) (laughs) When we talk about deconstruction of institutions, obviously the media is is a piece of that. And I, I would just be interested in your recollections and reflections on how the media has changed in covering the primary process from, say, when Johnny Apple, you know, said that Jimmy Carter won a smashing victory in the Iowa caucus. And Murph Field famously stood behind him and said, Jimmy, I, or, uh, Johnny, I think you're the one that's smashed. But <laughs> uh, anyway, I mean, how, how does that affect it? Because, you know, we have a huge amount of the so-called media that's really just a propaganda arm for at least one and possibly two political parties. And I, and I just, you know, what does that look like from, a, a, from an operative's perspective? Do you want me to answer? Yeah. Oh, me. <laughs> Not me. I mean, he's looking no. to you. <laughs> he just tosses that. Oh, that's, thanks, um, You know, I am somewhat less concerned about that, and I'll tell you why. Throughout American history, we have had a lot of propaganda media. Um, there used to be nothing but pamphlets. All the newspapers in the country used to have a partisan bent or another. Okay, so I'm less concerned about the partisan media than I am about the Wild West of the Internet, where anything goes and where, no offense to the young people in the room, the (laughs) skills to discern fact and fiction are simply not there. And so, you know, one of the most damning things that happened was in 2016 was that down in St. Petersburg, Florida, there was a bot farm putting out 30 million, 30 million pieces a day, taking uh, Hillary Clinton, making Hillary Clinton into, you know, a crook and a child molester and a murderer and on and on and on. And there's not, there are, again, there are no gatekeepers anymore, right? When you had newspapers, at least you had editors. And and the newspapers might have been partisan, but they had editors who had felt a responsibility not to print something that was absolutely, totally ridiculous, like the pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., where Hillary Clinton was running a child molesting ring, okay? These days, there are no gatekeepers, and that is frightening. And I think that may be the most frightening thing about our democracy is that it is, again, it's the wild, wild west. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. You're really good at this. (laughs) I spent a lot of time in classrooms.